It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. I am here with my friend, Sam. And when I asked Sam how she wanted me to introduce her, she said, make sure you say that we met at a Beer in Jesus group. Is that what you said? Beer and Jesus? Yeah, Beer and Jesus. But sometimes I think it was margaritas and Jesus too. So maybe that's not fair. But yeah, we met here in Montana at a group that um, kind of formed around um, some mutual friends. And um, we we met for several months and it was really one of the more life-giving experiences for me spiritually that I've had in town. Um, and we just experienced some um, books together and some really great conversation. And that's how I got, got to know her. How do you, how do you remember that group, Sam? Um, yeah, you know, I remember, uh, meeting Jonathan who I worked with, who was a mutual friend of yours. And I kind of just said yes to jumping into meeting with a bunch of strangers and kind of, uh, opening up our selves and our souls and, and showing each other. And, uh, it was a pretty cool group that got together. I'm at a stage, uh, I think in my faith and faith process that I don't meet a lot of people, uh, that I have a lot of in common with. So yeah, it right. was definitely giving right that's that's how i that's how i feel about it well sam is the partner of one and the mom of two and um i just wanted her to share a little bit about her story and as we explore faith after trauma sam has had some experiences that have definitely helped to form her and shape her Mm -hmm. faith and i just wanted her to share a little bit about her story so first tell us a little bit about your Yourself. Yeah, sure. Are we going way back? Well, I go as far back as you want. Okay. Okay. Let's go way back. Uh, I'll just say, um, yeah, I was born and raised in a small town in Montana. I grew up in a home that didn't really involve any faith, but I got involved in the, in the church and youth group stuff, uh, you know, my early teen years. From there, I, I uh, couldn't wait to get out of Montana, moved to Phoenix and uh, did a ministry school there for a couple of years, lived in Phoenix for, for eight years. I got married there. I became a ma- massage therapist there. Then we decided to venture to Alaska uh, and I lived the commercial fishing life for about six years. Mm-hmm. Um, had two kids when I lived in Alaska. Abby was born in 2012. Eli was born in 2014. And then through a crazy set of events, I now find myself living in California and loving the sunshine. Yeah. So do you miss the Montana winter? Uh, no, I don't miss anything about the winter. Not one thing. I do. I do miss the mountains though. Yeah. How far do you have to go to get to mountains? Uh, you know, Tahoe is uh, close to two hours from here. So, 
Well, I just, there's no easy way to kind of dive in, but um, I wanted you to share your story about your son, Eli, and to tell us um, a little bit about who he was and, and his circumstance and just jump in for me, would you? Yeah. He was, like I said, my um, second pregnancy, uh, and I had gone in for a standard uh, ultrasound at, at 18 weeks. I, uh, that's when they do the gender reveal. And I remember the ultrasound tech. Uh, I, I knew something was going on when this ultrasound took an extremely long time, and she kept in one spot for an extremely long time. And that's when we found out that a heart defect. Uh, now, I lived in a small, tiny town in Alaska. Uh, their medical facilities weren't great. Their you know, equipment wasn't great. Um, so they, they shipped us off um, to Seattle. And from there, we found out that his uh, heart defects were quite extensive. Uh, and they found this all out in utero, which I find like amazing. So that is at amazing. Weeks, at 18 weeks, his heart was the size of a dime. And what they found was um, the first thing that they noticed while we were in Alaska, it's called dextrocardia. So his heart, instead of being on the left side of his body, it was in the center of his chest. And then he had an ASD and a VSD, which are a whole, two different holes in his heart. And then the big diagnosis uh, was called L-transposition of the greater arteries. And what that means is that the two arteries going into his heart uh, were flipped on the wrong side and the, his two bottom ventricles in his heart were anatomically on the wrong side. Okay. Uh, so your ventricle, uh, one of your ventricles, your right ventricle pumps blood to your lungs to get oxygenated. Your left ventricle pumps blood to your entire body once it is oxygenated. So that left ventricle has extra muscle in it because it has that bigger job of pumping to your whole body. So in Eli, that was switched around. So his, his ventricle that was pumping to the entire body was doing the work that it wasn't created to do. It didn't have um, that extra muscle in it. Okay. So it was kind of a whirlwind. Uh, I flew uh, every month back and forth to Seattle for my whole pregnancy. Had to live in Seattle for a couple months around when he was born. His doctors didn't know if he was going to need surgery or not right away. They didn't know how his heart would perform when he was born. Uh, it was kind of wait and see um, how it would go. And when he came out, it was like an answer to all the prayers that we had had because he was fine. He wasn't going to need any surgery right away. His heart was pumping. His oxygen wow. levels were fine. Um, it was like an answer to prayer, like a miracle. And so we continued flying back and forth to Seattle about every month to see his cardiologist. And we were kind of, uh, he was doing well. You would never know he was sick. He was like, he was like this giant baby. He had this big old square head. And the funny <laughs> thing is, is that like we go into, whether we are going to just his cardiologist or we are in the hospital for a surgery stay, like, he was always the biggest baby there because most heart babies right. have, have trouble growing. Yeah, I'd have trouble growing. So it was always funny. And we'd always get like these looks because you would never, you would never tell looking at him that something was wrong. 
Was he a good baby? Um, he was, he was very, um, very easygoing. He loved everybody. Um, I always remember, uh, when he started walking, he had like, he had these little bowed legs. So he'd walk around waddling like a complete like cowboy. (laughs) Um, he had super soft, wispy blonde hair and blue eyes. So take me back to when he was in utero, were they giving you like survival rates or were they saying this was all survivable and he would be okay? What were they telling you at that point? What I found out is that it's very, very rare. So one in 10 children are born with a heart defect, whether it's like a ASD, VSD, like a simple hole in your heart that fixes itself or, you know, a simple surgery. Wow. Uh, So one in 10 babies is born with a heart defect. His condition, the L transposition of the greater arteries is seen in less than 1% of that 10% of heart. So it's very rare. And so what I found out that there was really uh, up until the nineties, there was really no treatment for it. Uh, it was like the wait and see plan. Uh, let's just wait and see at some point we're going to expect your heart to go into heart failure because it's doing a job that it's not supposed to be doing. It's not set up to be doing. And at that point you would go on a heart transplant list. So general life expectancy from a lot of research, uh, I didn't always just rely on the doctors to tell me things. Um, right. but I became, you know, like mama cardiologist. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, and joined a lot of Facebook groups and got a lot of information. Uh, and from what I could tell in in studies and talking to people, the life expectancy would maybe if lucky be into the thirties. Okay. So for a while I was okay when he was, when he was born for a while, I was okay with the wait and see plan because I didn't know any better until I started doing Uh, a lot of research on his condition and found out that in the nineties, they started the surgery where they would just try to anatomically uh, in a series of surgeries, switch the anatomy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, They call it the double switch surgery. So um, man, we, we talked to, uh, I consulted with um, pediatric cardiac surgeons at Stanford uh, on the East coast, uh, at the university of Michigan and all of them were kind of advising like, yeah, I think that he would be a good candidate for this double switch surgery to give him a better shot, you know, at survival and not just on this wait and see plan. So what age, what age was he at this point? At that point, he was probably, uh, just a couple months old at that point. So I, I did learn that, the younger that that he was to do the surgery, that the better um, better chance he had, because you know that muscle in his heart was atrophying; it was getting smaller as it sat there, not doing the work that it was supposed to be doing. So, uh, if you if you do the surgery younger, then that uh, that muscle in that ventricle has less chance of atrophying. So, um, it was. It is the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life to choose this elective set of surgeries for Eli, but I made the choice to do it. So at six months old, um, we flew to Michigan for his first surgery. It's called a a pulmonary artery banding, a PA banding. 
they put a band on his pulmonary artery to make that ventricle that was all relaxed sitting there, you know, not doing stronger. Yeah. Make it work, make it stronger. Um, So we did that with that at six months old. Uh, It was just myself and Eli and we flew to Michigan and stayed at the hospital for, I think it was only about a week. So he had his first open heart surgery then. And then it would be a year later that he would be ready then, uh, that his heart would be strong enough to then at 18 months old, do the double switch surgery. Okay. The whole anatomy of it. So, uh, yeah, at 18 months, we flew down back over to Michigan and did the surgery. I don't know if you've ever been in a waiting room of somebody that is in surgery, but it's like the longer. It's forever. It's absolutely forever. And especially, and was, especially when it's your child, it just feels like it's have, interminable. Have yeah, yeah, it's forever. Yeah, so that surgery, that surgery was the big one. The PA banding wasn't this big of an issue. This was the big surgery. It took about eight hours and, you know, checking in with the surgeon right after they were complete, he said everything went flawlessly in the surgery. So we were ecstatic and um, we're waiting to get back to the room to see him. He, we get back there, he was still pretty unconscious and all the beepers and everything started going on and his blood pressure kept dropping, kept dropping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was crashing <clears throat> even after you know, the surgeon said everything went flawlessly. So they, they kicked us out of the room and uh, they opened up uh, his chest, his sternotomy incision back up because his blood pressure was, was just too low. And they, they had their hands inside of his chest pumping his heart with their wow. hands until they could hook up um, this life support system called ECMO. It, mm-hmm. it runs the blood outside of your body, does the oxygenation, runs it back in so your heart can have a break. And so it, it was, um, it was several minutes that they couldn't be pumping his heart while they were hooking this machine up. So he was several minutes without oxygen. Did um, you know at that point that how serious it was? Did you have a sense I, of that? I didn't yet. I didn't yet. I remember them hooking up the ECMO machine and, uh, I didn't really know much about that. And I would hear nurses and and they had just a technician for that one specific machine that would sit there with them and monitor it saying, you know, once they go on this, it's not a good chance that they come off. And it was, um, it was vague. It's, it's definitely a blur in my mind of neurologists coming in and out and not really wanting to speak the truth and be clear with us what was going on. But I do remember when it became real to me was the moment that the head neurologist came and sat down and said that he had sustained enough brain damage from going without the oxygen that he wouldn't be able to survive. Wow. And I, I remember sitting there and letting out the most uncontrollable gut-wrenching scream yeah. that you probably ever heard. And that, that's when it became real to me. So then we had some decisions to make. We started talking about, you know, would we donate his organs? What would, what would we do? And we decided we would. So that's a it's a process. It's a process to do that of uh, several days of testing, uh, whether they declare brain death uh, or cardiac death. 
you know, you can donate more organs if it's, if it's brain death. So we had, um, you know, several days with him sitting on life support, knowing that he wasn't going to make it. Uh, our, our family all flew in to say goodbye. And I remember, um, I remember sitting in the hospital room and I've never, ever felt anything like it before, but God's peace in that room was, was palpable. Uh, and I wasn't the only one that could feel it. Every doctor or nurse that would walk in could feel it and would comment about it. And it was like, you know, the peace that passes understanding my son. was. Yeah. I knew I was going to have to make the choice. Uh, and figure out when we were going to take him off of life support. And I had this piece that was like unbelievable. And I... Was it peace in your heart of knowing that you had made the right decision? Or was it peace for him? What What was the peace about? I would say it was knowing that I made the right decision for him. Although I would question myself a hundred times. Mm-hmm. you know, after, after he died on making the decision for him. I think the peace was just God's comfort. Yeah. Peace was, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I have him. I mean, there was a point where I knew like I was, I was turning him over to God. I remember when they said, you know, it's time, it's time to take him uh, off the machine Man, I, I took him in my arms and I sang to him the song that I sang to him every night before I put him to bed. Uh, and it was, it was like I was handing him back up to God. And I think that's what the piece was. And so how many, how many days was he on that life support? That's a good question. His surgery was on the 18th of January. and He died on the 23rd. Okay. Five days. Six days. Yeah. And so the family was able to come in and say goodbye to him. Yeah. Um, the hospital did a really great job and gave us this huge room and set him on a big bed so we could lay with him. Yeah. All of our family flew in to say goodbye, our siblings and parents. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry. That's, that's just overwhelming to me. Um, I've, we have a cancer survivor in our family and I remember wrestling with whether she would live or die. And, and that feeling as a mom is so overwhelming. Um, I can't imagine staring that so directly in the face. Yeah, I think it is every, every mother's or parents for that matter, worst nightmare. Definitely. So after he after he died, what was your conversation with God like? I was angry. I was really angry at first with God. In a matter of days, I went through a lot of different emotions. I remember I remember picking up a bottle of hand sanitizer and chucking it across the conference room at the hospital, like in the middle of all this. So there there was anger there. One of my biggest changes and conversations with God was uh, really around prayer and what prayer's place was in my life. I didn't want to ask God for anything anymore because he doesn't always grant what we want. Right. Not confident. 
he's not a genie in a bottle to give us what we want. So my conversation was a lot like the Psalms too. It was like up and down the yelling at God, not understanding where are you? Why didn't you save him? Why didn't you heal him? But knowing yet I was still under his wing, still felt his peace, still felt his presence. You know, we had to stay in, we had to stay in Michigan for a few days. He died on a Saturday. And um, we were going to cremate him to take him home to Alaska. And you have to have um, a certificate or a license or something to do a cremation. And so we had to stick around until Monday to get that and to get everything done. So he died on a Saturday. We go to a hotel. Like, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. Like, I was just lost. Yeah. And. Um, on the way to the hotel on Saturday from the hospital, I saw this church and I had woken up at like five in the morning on Sunday, like got maybe a couple hours of sleep and decided like, all right, let's go to church. So all the family that had come was there. And so we went to church and I was like, this is weird. Like my son died yesterday and I'm at this church and God spoke to me so profoundly. I had never heard the song before, but it was right when the song Good, Good Father had come out. Yes. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And that played and it just like struck my soul. And I thought to myself, like, this is the point where I can either harden my heart and turn away from God and be angry or I can say he is a good, good father. Choose to continue trusting him even without understanding or having answers to why. And that, that, was, that was a huge, huge moment for me in, in not hardening myself to God. And it's so hard in those moments to, you know, we say kind of flippantly sometimes, you know, God is good all the time. And when you're in circumstances like that, it is the hardest thing to do to make that decision to say, this is what I'm going to trust. Yeah, it is, you know, a big, um, a big thing for me too. I remember, you know, the worship song, it's probably by Hillsong. The lyrics are spirit lead me, uh, where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters, take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember listening to that song like in a worship service while I was pregnant with him still. And I remember thinking like, like with these people all around me, I'm like wanting to shake them. Like, do you understand what you're saying? You want God to take you deeper than your feet would ever wander. You want to walk into something that you would never choose for yourself. Like I felt like I was in that spot in a position with, with my son and his heart condition and just hoping for his survival, um, that it's not anything that I would ever chose for myself. So faith is a lot, I think more than not questioning. What do you think? What, what are the other elements of faith? Do you think, you know, where, where I've gone with faith, I just think, you know, being unfaithful, um, isn't necessarily questioning God or asking questions or beliefs. I think it's being open to his mystery Mm -hmm. and, and, and not understanding. Do you feel like in your, um, 
learning about faith and coming to understand faith, do you feel like it left room for a God that you could question? I feel like it left, I I feel like I had to question the God that I knew or the God that I had fit in my neat little box. You know, I, I grew up, I was like that good Christian girl, you know, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't have sex before I got married. I went to ministry school. I read my Bible and I prayed every day and this still happened to me. And so that really broke open this box of beliefs about, um, you know, that I had a, had of God. I think a lot of times Christians think that God is, you know, this genie in a bottle that if we live right, we can ask anything and it's going to be given to us. And I no longer have that belief. It sounds like for your faith, this um, Eli's life and death were formative and informative about who God is. His life and his death were definitely a catapult for me. It was almost like growing up in a mindset of a lot of certainty of I know who God is. I know how God operates. Things are black and white. There's this duality of right and wrong. My experience didn't explain that, though. My experience with Eli didn't explain that um, because I had done everything right. And that's still where I ended up, you know with, with a dead son, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to let go of God. So it, it opened up a lot for me to be able to then really start pulling apart a lot of my beliefs. And instead of taking a box of beliefs that I was handed by the church or that a lot of people are handed by their parents and breaking it open and sitting with the uncertainty of it and figuring out who God was from on my own and from my own experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you honor Eli's memory in your heart and in your practical daily life? Like what do you do to honor him? Yeah. I talk to him a lot. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily honoring him. Um, Oh, I think so. Yeah. But I, I, I do talk to him a lot, kind of for guidance. I do a fundraiser every year uh, and make donations to to research for congenital heart defects. Um, we're getting ready to do a walk here in um, August to raise money for the Children's Heart Foundation. That if anybody wants to sponsor me, that'd be great. Sure. <laughs> yeah. How do we How do we find out how to sponsor you? I will send you the link. You know, every year we celebrate um, his birthday. He had one birthday while he was alive. And he had, a, you know, his little smash cake with bright green frosting on it. Um, Dive in or did, was, he, was, he a, was he a poke at it? Oh, no. He tore that thing apart. <laughs> he tore it apart. And the, the green frosting was all over his face. So every year... We have our tradition of honoring him on his birthday. Uh, we make, you know, cupcakes or a cake with green frosting and just play around and smash, smash cake and frosting into, into each other's faces. I talk about him as much as I can. I, I kind of vowed when he died that um, if anybody were to ever ask me like, oh, how many kids do you have? That I would never not mention him. Right. Uh, 
because it was uncomfortable for me or because it was uncomfortable for the person that I was talking with. Um, so I always introduce him to people who ask me about my kids because he is still my kid. It's just, uh, he's not here. It's just different. We buy him a Christmas ornament every year that we think something that he'd be into at his age. He would be six now. So I think he got a baseball glove this year on the Christmas tree. What would you want people to know about faith coming out of a traumatic circumstance? What would you want them to come away with? I think on the side of just talking about, yes, faith, one of the biggest gifts that Eli has given me, and it's spread to so many other um, categories of my life, is that we have one life. We only have one life and Eli didn't get to live his. So I do want to honor his, his life. And I can't do that stuck in a victim mentality, being a victim of the things that have happened to me because that gets me nowhere. So learning that, learning to take control, learning to process and work through those traumatic things uh, and, and going on to be happy and create the life that you want. Uh, I remember being in a state for a long time uh, in grief, wondering if I was always just going to feel like this broken person. And I don't anymore. I I think that is, is probably one of the biggest gifts that Eli has given me not, not to live in the victim mentality. That's tremendous. Well, thank you for sharing about him and sharing about his, his story. I think it's really important that, after after we go through trauma, there comes a time when we do wrestle with faith and no matter what we believe in. And I think to take that apart a little bit, like you said, and analyze it is really important because then we know what we can take away from that experience. Yeah. Unorganize your faith. Yell at God. Scream at God. I don't think Christians do that these days. It's in the Bible. <laughs> yep, it but is. You can be real with God. He can handle all of the emotions that you that you process through. Yeah. 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 Well, I I feel like growing up I didn't have room in my faith to really question God. And I don't know if that's a maturity thing or if that's life circumstances, but I didn't really feel like I had permission to question and yell at God and 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 question just question him so i don't think that most people do uh i'm the church surely doesn't um you know want that they surely don't encourage that or questioning uh what they tell you or questioning god um yeah i don't i don't think it's a space that a lot of people have yeah well i think it's it's I really believe that it's in those spaces that we come to know who God really is. Yes. So, well, thank you so much for sharing your story and I appreciate you being vulnerable and, and telling us about him. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email Jill at JillRiley.org.